The scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 18, and it's just two verses, verse 21 and 22. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 70 times seven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I've said to Pastor Lou that... um, pretty sure that in the past year I have drawn every text on forgiveness. So I don't believe in coincidence and that must mean that God wants me to learn it to the bone. And I feel like I have learned so much about forgiveness. I've gained a lot of insight and um So I was having a conversation this week with an old friend of mine from school, and we were catching up on what was going on in the lives of our families, you know, ages and stages. And she said somehow overnight, it was like all of her brain juices had leaked out of her head and somehow All of the brain juice in the world had filled her teenage son's head. (laughs) Now suddenly, with this teenage son, there was no questioning or curiosity. He just knew stuff. All the stuff. And he suddenly had to be right about everything. She said it was like her home had become a battle, well, a battle of everything. And no matter what this mom would say to her son, it was wrong, just wrong. And she asked me, did you go through this with John? And I blinked a long blink like I had developed PTSD. And her shared incident had triggered a flashback. And then I shook myself out of it, and I smiled, and I said, yes, it was awful. (laughs) But it's better now. You know, when you are full of certainty, there's no room for growth. When you are full to the brim of what you already know, There is simply no room to learn something new. In our faith life, we are often taught that certainty is paramount to what it means to be a Christian. But the witness of scripture shows us that just the opposite is true. You see, Moses 
was godly. But as he stood in front of that burning bush, you know, the one that was burning but not being consumed, he was pretty uncertain about the next step to take in faith. Naomi was uncertain about returning to her homeland with Ruth. Joshua, as he led the people to the promised land, was uncertain about how God was going to accomplish all that he had promised. Mary said yes to being a vessel of love for the Messiah. But she was uncertain of how that was going to happen because she was a virgin. And then Joseph was uncertain about the kind of life and marriage he was going to have because his betrothed was pregnant. Not by him. You see, uncertainty is not uncommon to the heroes of our faith. In our Western culture, uncertainty is a mark of weakness. Uncertainly, uncertainty plows and then plants the seeds of doubt. It creates space for a lack of confidence, and we value certainty. We want to be certain about God. Certainty allows us to rely on what we believe rather on who, than, who God actually is. And this kind of certainty is a sin. This certainty is a sin because it causes us to rely on our own thoughts rather than trusting in God's character. What we think about God becomes more important than who God actually is. But if we're honest with ourselves and with God, the realm of uncertainty is where most of us live. In embracing the uncertain, which is our Lenten study book, Magri de Vega captures our discomfort with uncertainty, especially when it comes to Lent. He observes Advent and Lent portray two very different ways of following Jesus. The former calls us to the comforts of life and light, and the latter calls us to reflect with humility and penitence. Most of us find it easier to celebrate the comfort and hope of Jesus' birth than to risk the way of the cross. Embracing the uncertain is the way of the cross. We may live in times of blessing, but chaos can enter into that in a breath. Consider the tornadoes that ripped through the United States two weeks ago, or the tragedy in Christ Church this week. Uncertainty is the reality in which we exist. We can trust, though, with certainty, the forgiveness that we have received from God through Christ Jesus. How we live in that forgiveness on a day-to-day -day basis brings us 
to a sense of uncertainty, though. The uncertainty of forgiveness is wrapped up in our understanding of what forgiveness actually is. Forgiveness is giving pardon to someone for a wrong that has been done to you. So forgiveness requires two people at the minimum. One who has been wounded and one who has done the wounding. But who holds the power in this dynamic? The position of power in this relationship of pain always lies with the person who has been hurt. This seems counterintuitive. It may seem logical that the aggressor wields the power, but this is only a matter of perspective. It's not necessary for the person who has done the hurting to apologize in order for the sufferer to forgive. I'm going to say it again. It is not necessary for the aggressor to apologize in order for the sufferer to forgive. You see, forgiveness is entirely up to the one to whom the wrong was done. For the sufferer, forgiveness requires a certain amount of risk. A risk of further hurt or injury. The risk that we are required to take in order to forgive is directly tied to our innate understanding of our own human dignity. And at a more surface level, our pride. It is our desire to maintain and protect our own dignity as a human being that drives us to fear vulnerability. I just spent the weekend with a group of 60-plus women from New Albany and Stony Brook United Methodist Churches at Nationwide Conference, and it was really nice. And in our weekend together, we were examining the scripture of Micah 6-8 and how we are called to live in a world that seems to be rotating in the opposite direction that faith calls us to follow. There's an escalating atmosphere of contentiousness. Our news stories blare on in anger. They zoom in on war and violence, character defamation, polarizing debate and rhetoric, and friendships end over differences in politics and religion now more than ever. We've built a culture of competition. And yet, the prophet Micah's words sear the people's hearts. He has told you, O mortal, what the Lord requires of you. Practice justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with your God. When there is increasing pressure to climb over one another, to be king or queen of the hill, it's difficult to heed Micah's call. We are busy looking at one another as competition for what we imagine to be God's limited grace instead of affirming God's creative genius in each one of our brothers and sisters. Instead of acknowledging God's 
unlimited grace. We're too busy trying to best one another to stop and look at the hurt that we're doing in the process. And in our scramble to the top of the hill, we've lost sight of the fact that the original purpose of our climb is to be closer to God. We've lost sight of our purpose. Practicing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly means that we stop seeing God's grace as something we compete for and we help one another climb toward God. In other words, on the way, we straighten one another's crowns. Forgiveness, while it does involve risk, also involves a commitment to healing. I've talked a lot about Archbishop Desmond Tutu lately because he's like my new real-life superhero. He won the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1984, the Presidential Medal for Freedom in 1994, the Templeton Prize in 2013, South Africa's recovery from years of apartheid. Desmond Tutu was appointed as the chairperson for Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where he provided a new way for nations, not just people or groups of people, but nations to move forward after civil conflict or experiencing oppression. In addressing healing, Archbishop Tutu asserts that there are two possible paths from which to choose. There is the cycle of revenge or the fourfold path to forgiveness. Now the cycle of revenge begins with a hurt, a harm, or a loss. And that hurt, harm, or loss brings pain. And the sufferer of the pain chooses to retaliate and harm the one who has hurt them, or they can choose the path to healing. If the person or the group of people chooses to retaliate, then the sufferer continues to ignore the shared humanity of the other. And as they begin to ignore that shared humanity, the things that they have in common with one another, they start to be able to act out in revenge and retaliation. They begin to offer payback, resulting in inflicting physical or emotional or social violence or cruelty on the other. And that cycle continues like two tigers chasing one another's tails to eternity. Now, in contrast, the fourfold path to forgiveness begins with a hurt, harm, or loss. And that hurt, harm, or loss brings pain. But then the sufferer turns toward the choice to heal. And the choice to heal is followed by beginning to tell one's story of what happened. After you begin to tell your story, you don't have to tell it to the person who hurt you, but to someone you trust. And after you're able to do that, then you can name specifically the pain. And as you name the pain, you look to the person who hurt you 
and you recognize the shared humanity that you have. It could have just as easily have been you doing the hurting. And after you recognize the humanity, then you can either renew or release the relationship. Like the monkey who reaches his hand into the jar after the candy becomes a prisoner of the jar when he is unwilling to open his fist. We become prisoners of sin when we refuse to open our fists and let go of the anger and bitterness and resentment that we harbor. It is our choice whether or not we will open our fist. It is our choice whether we will equalize power in the relationship by adjusting our perspective and choosing to forgive. Peter asked Jesus the question, How many times must I forgive a person who sins against me? And he specifically asks Jesus if it's seven times. Seven was a number of completion in ancient Near Eastern tradition. And Peter was basically asking Jesus, do I have to forgive them all the way? Can't I just hold on to a little bit of bitterness? A little bit of resentment? A little bit of anger? Can't I just hold on to that? And Jesus responds, not seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. If we were to put this in our terms, it might sound like Jesus said, not just completely, but totally, entirely, wholly, thoroughly, unconditionally, absolutely, perfectly. This isn't a forgive and forget flippant response that encourage us to simply pretend that no wrong was committed, to stuff down our resentment like we're eating a piece of pizza only to have it return again and again with the accompanying heartburn and reflux. This has nothing to do with forgetting and ignoring. This is an intentional act, a complete and entire pardon. You know. Like the one that Jesus ended up offering to Peter when Peter denied him three times at his trial. And then Jesus forgave him, renewed the relationship, and then built his entire church on the leadership of the one who had caused him harm. That's forgiveness. It's forgiveness like the ways that we hurt God. And yet he sent his son to die for us so that we might be restored to relationship with God. 
That's forgiveness. And that's what we're called to do. Forgiveness is not about forgetting. It's about our motivation. I love what DeVega says at the end of his chapter on the uncertainty of forgiveness. He says, And rather than forget, we can pray that our recollections will cease to be central to our memory and move to the periphery, leaving only the details rather than the pain associated with them. In the end, we must believe that forgiveness is not optional in the Christian life. It is a calling of the highest standard, a sacred action prompted by divine impulse. It is God who calls us to forgive. And it is God who enables us to forgive for the healing of the world and the healing of our own souls. When I came to Stony Brook, I was fresh out of seminary with a head full of ideas and a heart full of Jesus. And over the years, my head full of ideas has sometimes gotten out in front of my heart full of Jesus. And in my zeal, I am certain that I have caused pain. But while I've been here, While I've been here, you have patiently walked with me and helped me listen more closely to the Spirit's leading. You have helped temper my zeal into something that drives me to love more deeply, to open my arms more widely, and to act more compassionately. I want to thank you for your patience and your grace. And as I part, it is my greatest desire to leave you all in a place of wholeness. And I can think of no better way than to offer one another signs of forgiveness.